I really do think that universities and colleges are going to be disintermediated in a very serious way. I think that you're going to see platforms like Alison just become ever more powerful. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, an Irish business association with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and today we are talking about the future of education with Mike Fierick, the CEO and founder of Allison.com. Allison.com is a free online learning platform which is based in Galway and has enrolled 17 million people into its courses and produced 3 million graduates. So as I'm recording this, Dublin has been moved to a level 3 lockdown which means that all colleges in the city which were expecting to welcome students back this month are going to have to transition to online lectures for the start of the semester. In the US, many major universities have decided to move this semester from campus-based learning to online lectures, but often without a deduction in the tuition fees which they charge. So now students are paying between $25,000 to $60,000 for a college experience that involves Zoom calls on their laptop. And all of this is bringing a debate about the value of our third level institutions into mainstream conversations. And somebody who's been a very vocal critic of the limitations of third level institutions is our guest today, Mike Fierick. He's long questioned the value of the education that students receive for what they pay and the inefficiency of four year bachelor degrees, which could have been reduced down to months and taught much more effectively online. Mike has been a pioneer in democratizing access to education through online platforms for the past 13 years. In 2007, he launched Allison as an e-learning company, and today it is one of the largest players in online education. Allison has enrolled over 17 million learners into their courses and produced 3 million graduates. And there's no doubt about it that traditional structures of education are breaking down and new structures are being built. But this was happening in the background anyway, but now with COVID, it's completely accelerated everything. The global education industry was valued at close to $5 trillion in 2015, and it's in the very early stages of being modernized by technology. Much like the iPod transformed the music industry and social platforms transformed the media industry, technology is about to experience the same transformation from e-learning platforms. If you go to YouTube and watch some of Mike's talks, he has been preaching this for years. In this interview, we discuss some of the key reasons why the current structures of third-level education are flawed and where the opportunities lie for businesses to enter this emerging space. One thing which I'd like to get into first to begin with is that you've been kind of calling out the vulnerability of higher education for a very long time and outlining that it's not the best place for people to receive education, nor is it the best place for them to experience social development. Both things which kind of coincide and take place in, in higher educational institutions. Why, why is it that you think that? Why is it that you think that their third level institutions aren't best suited for giving the best education and social development to people? The fact is that uh, third level education institutions uh, colleges, training centers, they're all intermediaries. They're all um, middlemen or middlewomen or whatever you want to call them. They're in the middle. But essentially, the, the Victorian system is 
you know, knowledge has to be passed from one person to another. Let's look at how it anciently, you know, when someone developed a trade many years ago, they did, you would apprenticeship, you would stand beside somebody, you would watch how they did it. You didn't even read because there wasn't a lot of books around. You just watched how people did it. And after a while, of course, you had Gutenberg and all of this, and then it became reading and then information found channels to flow additional from verbal. So then we, then we created these institutions because it, they were depositories of, of these books that were being created. Uh, there were collection points for these books. There were distribution uh, places and that people became expert around the mining of those books and the protection of the institutions uh, as both a money-making operation and also as a way to distribute knowledge. But the truth is today, things have just changed completely. We, we have, uh, you can learn anything anywhere, anytime, in any language, at any level <laughs> because of technology. So what's the point of somebody getting in the middle? And uh, the idea that there's actually institutions that harbor this knowledge and somehow, um, <laughs> you know, that, that, that they are actually relevant to this process of flow of information in this technology world. It's in some ways ridiculous. Of course, there's a lot of people in the status quo that say, hold on a minute, I'm not ridiculous and my institution is ridiculous. But you know what? In, in, in short time, it is going to become so. And actually, when I started talking about this stuff maybe 10 years ago and more, I, had, I, I, I was a little bit more reluctant. I said, well, do I really know? Or do, do, do I really believe that? Uh, everything pointed to it, <laughs> that, uh, that institutions of knowledge and these depositories, um, you know, just how, how relevant are their role going to be in the future? I'm actually quite uh, pessimistic uh, and increasingly pessimistic. COVID has, of course, brought, brought all of this to, 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 uh, to a head. It's, it's all about value. And it's saying, you know, for what colleges are charging for, it's just not worth it. And again, it's an issue of the business model of the college. Uh, what are you really paying for? And what is the college make, charging a lot of money for? And what are they charging very little for? A lot of the colleges are actually, could be sound economically if they looked a lot more closely at, at what they're charging for. For instance, it's very famous that 20% of courses in the United States at the moment are business courses, but they're the cheapest to provide because you can get a, a lecturer to stand up and teach you and talk about marketing or business development or sociology or whatever you want to cram into that business uh, curriculum. And, and really it's just one person. So they charge a lot of money and they make a lot of margin, but that's the type of learning that is absolutely vulnerable to the online revolution that's coming on right now. Uh, but they charge a lot for that. And yet they charge the same thing for people that are, you know, going into the chemistry lab and actually using the phosphates and the magnesiums and whatever else you have in there that are expensive. So the truth needs to be told that in the business courses, universities are going to find it very, very hard to teach stuff that's just taught everywhere else. It's just there's too much supply and demand, basic economics. But on the chemistry side, they're charging too little for bringing people in to facilities that are very specialist, and then you'd be charging more for that. And, 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 and then the thing is, the, what the infrastructure that's above that, it's just, do you, can you really afford to have all of these administrators? And what, what are they actually doing? And, and you've, you've got ridiculous situations here where you have you know, the colleges in America that are more about football than they are about learning. And that's a separate <laughs> issue. Does that change have to really start with companies, though? Because aren't companies kind of reinforcing the necessity for universities? Because 
the value of a university is more so that it's a it's a social stamp of accreditation that you have been accredited because you're one of us. They they have become within and of themselves brand identities. And yes. much like the clothes that you wear are some sort of an identifier of the people that you spend your time with, have universities not taken that mantle? And how do you break that? Because that's something that would be very hard for society to move away from. Yeah. So the thing is, the technology changes way quicker than the behavior. And corporates, um, you know, it, it, yes, they've been accepting educational qualifications as signaling. That's that's really the word that's often being used. It's signaling. It tells you that the person had the diligence and the economic means to do a four-year degree at a certain college. But that that is that is so uh, subjective, and, and and it is so unfair on those people that don't have the opportunity to go to college. Uh, the one figure I, off, I I go on about again and again is the fact that only seven percent of the world have ever gone to college. Ninety-three percent have not. So we cannot continue in a system where we are insisting that people do these four years expensive degrees that are out of date. And nowadays, people can learn a lot more quickly and, and they don't come to companies with uh, the burden of debt. But to go back to your company, your company question, I, I think it's the case that companies just haven't been sharp enough to respond just yet. The sharpest of the companies are, of course, way ahead on this. You basically have Amazon, who has their own universities entirely. You know, they have their own courses online. There's no question that they're developing a profound uh, large-scale education system within Amazon with a view to unleashing it on the world, you know, sometime soon. And uh, I expect to see it. So they're not waiting for colleges. In fact, they don't want to wait for colleges. They want people that they can pay as little as possible to for the highest level of skill. So they don't want people coming out of colleges, really, that's, that have this expectation that they're going to make $50,000, $60,000 as they start. They want people coming out on minimum wage. <laughs> they want people coming out on minimum wage, and then they train them up to a level that they get the most economic uh, impact from. So, so let's take away Amazon, who I believe will be totally mercenary in terms of how they educate people. Google would be less so. But look at Google's announcements in the last couple of weeks where they, you, you may have come across where they announced a, a three-month degree. If you do it for $49, they'll give it the same recognition as a college degree as you're applying to, 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 their, to them for job. Absolutely. I can tell you, I, I've been running tech companies for 20-something years. And the best programmers I've ever, I've ever hired are the people who started programming when they were 11 and 12. That they, they just think programming and that's, it's their love, it's their passion, it's their vocation. These are the people that you really want to, to get on board because they're very curious and, they, and they, they won't just take it from a book. And you can be sure that they didn't pass, you know, Python uh, 103 and 104 just because they wanted to get uh, the Python mark. They wanted to know Python or, or, or whatever program they were looking at. These are the natural learners. So Google is, is accepting that, you know what? We don't want to overpay for learning that's inappropriate for, or, or, or of no purpose for the people that we employ. We want them to know what we want them to know, and we want them to know it now. I'm curious because just with everything you said that, it's very interesting. What do you foresee will happen? And I, I channel this more specifically to the, the kind of the connection between um, corporates hiring and yeah. uh, plucking educated people. What do you think is going to happen over the next few years? So uh, I, I guess uh, I really do think that universities and colleges are going to be disintermediated in a se very serious way. I think that you're going to see platforms like Allison uh, 
just uh, become ever more powerful. I, I just know the work that's going on internally. I, I can, you know, uh, with us, where the work is is very driven by uh, AI through, you know, a, a every sort of machine learning. It's becoming, you know, database driven. Uh, the the fact that not only do we want, we do we now know what people want to learn. We we then give them psychometric tests. We find out what kind of courses they should they might seriously consider because it's better for who they are. Uh, we connect with them more job job opportunities in a lot more efficient way because we know, we know who they are. We know what they're studying. We know what job they're in. We know you know we, we can be a lot more focused or a lot more accurate in in uh, in identifying what might be the next step for these beyond what any service can do for them today because of the strength of the processing power of all of the information that we have available today. So I, I really feel that, you know, how can colleges keep up with, you know, we have 2000 courses on our platform right now, but we have only, we are, we're just starting. <laughs> we, we, it has taken us a thousand, uh, we got, it took us nearly 10 years to get to a thousand courses. It took us maybe another couple of years to get to 2000. But, I, I, you know, I know that we'll, we'll publish at least two to 3,000 courses in the next 12 months, and then we'll start publishing 10,000-plus courses per annum. And, and then we'll get to hundreds of thousands of courses per annum. And uh, you just start saying, where are universities going to be in this? Because if you take any university that you know or anybody who's listening, take, take university that you know and, and just think about what, what courses they offer. And, uh, I, you know... You, and NUIG in Galway is one example that's known to you and I. I don't know, I guess 200 courses at most is what they offer. How are they going to compete with a platform that has 100,000 courses and it's all based from experts, people worth listening to? So going back to your question, where, where, where is corporates going to do? I think corporates are going to be really focusing on what do they know internally? The one thing that's getting out of the bag here, though, is as knowledge, as, as the holders of knowledge become a lot more... Um, less reluctant to share what they know. What happens is that if you have, say, for instance, there's a pencil manufacturer in China, right, just as an example, and uh, you want to know how to make pencils. Do you know how to make pencils now? No. Okay. Not a clue. You know what? There's going to be a course on the web that'll show you how to make pencils. So there's going to be a course on doing anything and making anything on the web. And, and these are not just 101. These are going to be increasingly sophisticated products. So where companies have a special IP or an insight on how to develop stuff, there's going to be courses all over the place as to how you catch up with these people. And for me, that what that means is that this status quo that, has, that, that keeps a lot of companies alive a long time, well after the entrepreneurial people in the company that started it and, and, and grew it have left that the actual life expectancies of organizations that don't have this entrepreneurial life still in it, they'll die so much quicker because the virus of knowledge around them and it will be so strong and it will eat them, you know, because, because of this flow. And this, of course, then, if, if, you, if we were meeting at Davos or we were meeting at whatever high-level thing, you'd say, hold on a minute, this free learning thing, actually has serious social repercussions. If we are a nation that's actually leading in the world, how do we deal with this? Because at the moment we are leading and we're economically more powerful. Well, why would we allow the world to actually 
get into this. And actually, The Economist magazine came out with an article about six months ago how it was saying how American intelligence agencies were starting to look at this and say, hold on a minute, you know, America has a lead on this. Uh, why would we be allowing free education and let the, the rest of the world catch up with us and compete with us? This is something that I kind of mentioned at the beginning and you've spoken about before is that these institutions, educational institutions, have also taken on the mantle of social development. So it's not alone just on educating society, but also in developing them through giving them access to clubs and societies and different things along these lines. And you made an interesting point in an interview before that these colleges are not the best places to develop uh, young adults, to give them the best development which they can get. And that you can separate the world of education and social development so that they happen in two separate places. Can you expand on that a bit more for me? Because I thought it was a very interesting concept and idea, which I hadn't heard before. Yes. So, uh, you know, I, I think that even before this, this um, issue was identified as an issue, many of us that have gone through college would talk about uh, our social experience at college ahead of the learning achievement. And uh, it, it, it was just assumed that college was about growing up, that college was about coming of age, of making new relationships, of doing things that we never did before <laughs> and, and, and stepping out from who we are, really growing, taking, taking a step on the wild side. Uh, but yet it was all done under the pretense and under the umbrella that you were going there to learn. And that was kind of the safety net. But as learning has become so much more accessible, uh, that relatively the price of it being charged by these universities is too high, that they're becoming so much more inefficient at providing the, the level of education uh, in terms of being up to date as it should be, you then, then, then the tide is going out. <laughs> and, then you, and, you're, and you're looking at what's there and you're saying, okay, but this social stuff, is it worth it? And is it worth the price? Most people would turn around and say, well, college, yeah, it, it is important. I met a lot of friends there. I met my girlfriends. I met my boyfriends. I met marriages. I, you know, I, I became who I am today there. But let's, let's separate it. Did you really have to pay for that? And did you have to pay that institution for it? So I, I, would, I would be saying today, if it wasn't COVID times, I, t I tell my own kids this. And so I think that's the litmus test for any person <laughs> of saying, well, what do they tell the people closest and dearest to them? is that, you know, number one, go travel. You can't do that right now. But the thing is, it gets you out. It gets you learning about places and people. You have to interact. You have to learn, look and see how the world works. Getting involved in, in groups. Do you really need to, you know, in, in some ways, I used to go around college and you'd see, you know, this club and that club. Yes, that's fine. You had the badminton club of this college and that. But you know what? All of those, <laughs> all of those are out, out in society anyway. If you weren't spending all the time in college, maybe you could actually attend these local clubs, you know, in your locality, maybe an extra night a week or two. So there's getting, getting that. Then there's the video side of things. Every one of us is getting online and we're doing video chats. But you and I are talking in a business sense here. But actually, you could be doing that in a lot more in a, in a cultural sense. If you're interested in China and you're interested in Chinese history, you could be part of groups online talking about Chinese history. There's no college needs to be involved here. There are loads of those forums. Go out and find them. These, for, these type of forums are developing more and more where it's not under the institutional banner. It's actually, there are associations for anything <laughs> these days online. Get involved. Follow your curiosity. 
and it'll cost you a lot less. So uh, yes, in the COVID times, physically, we are restricted. Um, but I think that that lends itself to, an, to another point that I, I'd make to you is there's an analogy here with the music industry. Years ago, uh, and I remember it because I, was, uh, I had a job to go into a music company many years ago and, and figure out for them whether this internet thing would affect their business. <laughs> and we came back with an analysis within about a week saying it's going to devastate the business. But it devastated in one way and added in another. Look at the music industry today. It's very cheap to actually get a recording and to play it when you want it, uh, what, you want to, what you want to hear. But if you've gone to a Bruce Springsteen concert uh, recently, how much did you pay for that ticket? You probably paid a couple of hundred bucks, if not more. So what's happening here is that anything that can be commoditized is really being driven down in price. And the most valuable thing that we do is actually the personal interaction. So this personal interaction in college sometimes, uh, this, is, this is actually something that the college has been pulling off and, and, and stealing value on. They, it's, it's this interaction. They say, oh, just because you're on campus uh, and they talk about the professors they have. But actually, when did you get to meet the professor when you were on college? Even though you were there and they list out these professors, do you, ever, do you really get access to them? Do you really get access? And how often do you get access to the tutorials people? So there's been this kind of thing of, yeah, people have been going to college, but how much of what they talk about is really available? And uh, so, so what you pay for is this, is this physical interaction, this one-to-one, this value. And if I had 10 minutes or half an hour with that professor, or who I usually I hugely respect, but I've listened to all of their lectures online, I would love to meet that person. I would love to ask them A, B, C, and D. What would you pay for that? You know, and, and, and does it have to be the professor at the college? Again, this whole idea of the professors at the college. Do you know that we've had this very old style where you, where you go to get your college degree, your master's, your PhD. We have the crazy situation in Ireland, for instance, that every professor now has to have a PhD. That's so ridiculous. <laughs> it's just like a PhD is just a process. If you're pretty smart, you'll go through it. But why? It's very expensive. Partly is to bring in business to the university to keep people there, keep them paying fees. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I know it's, it's pretty um, cynical, but it, but it is. So again, we've got to get into the situation where the te- and technology can support this, where everyone's a learner, but everyone's a teacher too. And that this whole idea that we are a world of receivers of knowledge we have been, but actually what's going to happen now is going to be a lot more give and take, and that's going to rise the general knowledge of people so much more highly. I'm um, just curious to know, you've elaborated a bit on it, but what is, what is the, the future entailing for Alison? You know, you've, you've experienced this extreme growth. What do you expect is going to roll out over the next coming years now that there's going to be an even greater appreciation and audience for online learning? I think what you're going to see, well, I know what you're going to, going to see is uh, when we started off and I, and I saw the vision of what's developing now, uh, it's taken a lot longer than I wanted to, to get it even to where it's today, uh, is that uh, I called it Alison just as much as anyone called Google or Alibaba because it needed to be a name that could roll off any tongue and it, be, it could morph from one thing to another. So I, I didn't want it just to be free online learning. What's happening on the platform is that it's becoming much more of an empowerment platform, that it's not just learning, but actually you can come on and publish content and you publish in a way that's very easy to do, but at the same time, 
the, the, the knowledge is curated and, and rated and has the ability to be um, assessed by the power of the crowd to make sure that it's quality content. You have psychometrics developing, uh, whereby we, we have free personality tests at the moment. The completion rates on our, our, person, on, on our psychometric testing are very, very high, over 75% completion rates. People dig this stuff. They like doing it. Suddenly, we get a, a lot more knowledge about who people are, and then we match it to, to what they're studying. Between the two of them, we can figure out what type of jobs they might do. We're starting to integrate recruitment. So we can, we, it becomes an overall empowerment platform. And then, then we turn around and we say, well, how else can we help these people? If we're giving them free personality tests and we're giving them cognitive skills and we're looking at their verbal numeracy, abstract reasoning skills, there's other things that we can be looking at. Where's their mindfulness at? Where's their empathy at? How can these things be developed? And how can, how can they work to share these, this, these type of empowering skills among their family and their community? And for us, it's just that it, the secret is really digitization. There is 4 trillion, as I was saying, spent around the world on education. It, the huge majority is the same thing has been taught to the same, it, the same thing has been taught to everyone. Uh, of all the knowledge that could be taught in the world, 1% of 1% of 1% of it is actually being published right now and being taught to people. We need to put on to the world a menu of all that might be learned. And that allows people to really go wherever they might go in what they might want to know. Uh, it's just very, very restrictive. Education traditionally has been very political. And that means that it's one of the most fragmented industries in the world. It is actually singularly the most fragmented industry in the world. Your, your organization, Alison, provides courses for free, which is, you know, it's, it's a completely unique thing for people, most people to think about that, that you can go online and you can get a course which can teach you something, but you can get it for free. And it's, it's a highly produced course. How does that business model work? Uh, it, it essentially goes down to volume, uh, is that we have millions of people on the platform. We have 17 million registered learners, but we have 3 million graduates. So, uh, you know, lots of websites can have lots of people signed up, but uh, it's when you see the engagement, uh, that's, that's really where you, where you know that there is a lot of people committed to the site. Um, how the business model works is twofold, advertising, uh, which is based on traffic, and then certification. Uh, we're a for-profit social enterprise, so we're set up not with, uh, with profit being the number, number one or the absolute reason why we're set up. Profit's important uh, because of sustainability, invest, uh, in investors, uh, the potential to grow, all of, the, all of that good stuff. But at the same time, it's important to us, you know, certainly my, one of my, more, my motivations is to make learning more accessible to people around the world. So uh, advertising is great that way. Look at Facebook, look at Google. We tend to think of these things, with, with uh, t we take them for granted. Uh, we don't pay for them, but they do make money and everybody knows that they do. Uh, but it's through advertising. Uh, what I, I, lo I love the equity of advertising. When someone is studying in California uh, and, and they click an ad, we might make $3. If someone clicks it in India, we might make $0.02 cent if we make that at all. What's happening is that the people in the wealthy part of the world are paying uh, so that people in the, in the less developed world's part of the world can learn the exact same thing. And that's pretty cool. So uh, advertising is one part of it. And the other is certification. But certification is optional. And, and that's the one clear thing. Uh, you know, when the Caseras and the edX started off uh, with, as competitor of ours, many, many years after we started, uh, people started saying, you know, and, and giving the, the word MOOC to it in the sense that a massive open line uh, online, 
there was a, a, an idea that these are all free, but actually there are very few f- actually free platforms left. And in fact, Alison would be, as far as I'm, the, uh, I'm aware, the only one that provides free learning and free certification. Everything is free. And, and uh, on Alison, like, let, let me qualify that actually. Uh, the, ev- the everything that's needed to have on Alison is free. Everything that uh, is nice to have, you pay a little. Uh, so, for instance, if you complete a course on Alison and you pass the, the, the test, uh, the assessment, and you get 80% for that, then you are a graduate. No one taking that away from you. You've just proved it. Uh, if you want a piece of paper that you can put up on a wall and that's uh, fancy or do you want it uh, with, with a nice holography in it, uh, on it, uh, you can either download something like a PDF or you can get a part, an actual parchment from us and you pay for that. But it's optional. So uh, between the two of those, uh, we make millions of dollars a year that pay all our bills and we, we have 100 staff globally. <laughs> so it's obviously substantial revenue. Uh, more and more, what's interesting is actually we, we've, we're in the situation where we can afford to have less and less advertising on the website. Uh, we've been finding in some countries that taking away advertising entirely actually drives up the usage, which is driving our certification. And because of the brand, the increasing brand awareness of Alison, uh, more and more people are buying our certifications, which potentially could make the platform entirely uh, free and not even have advertising. So that's how it works. And how has how has this pandemic affected you where everybody has turned to online learning? I'm sure it's just increased the volume X amount. So many people have had very great difficulty and, and, and tough times. But there's no question that the whole online learning sector has, has had a boom. Uh, and like video people like Zoom and the, and the likes, there are certain industries like us that really have done well in, uh, in this. I, I, I see it just not necessarily a windfall. I just see it as the market just coming a little earlier than I had expected, uh, which is a good thing. It has been good in the sense of mo- moving people's expectations to saying, you know, I can learn online and why would I pay for this? Uh, what I'm being charged for. And is the college degree worth? It's not just the cost. It's also the time. Young people are saying, do I really want to spend three to four years of my life hanging around maybe near home, going to college in Galway or going to college in Dublin or or wherever you are in the world uh, and going to the nearby college? uh, Does it it make sense to spend that time? You know, COVID separate. What if I spent that time traveling? You know, today, I can, you know, so many people can work online. You can you can work online and you can travel online. I, I you know, um, even with Alison, we have a very small office now in Galway. We're mostly virtual people all over the world. Um, our, our our lead on PR is is based in it was based in the Philippines last week. She's in South Africa this week. It matters nothing to me that she's moving around like that because she does what she needs to do. So th- this is the future. Uh, we have. You know, uh, financial analyst working in Dubai last week. He's now in, back home in Pakistan. Good luck to him. <laughs> I talk to him just as much whether he's in Pakistan or whether he's in Dubai or whether he was in Galway. Uh, the impact on Ireland and digital companies and where they're based of. Because for us, in some ways, it's almost a release. Uh, when we're hiring people now, I'd say from in the future, we will hire five people abroad for every one person we will hire in Ireland. And uh, that's because they're cheaper. <laughs> There's not so much uh, HR baggage with it in the sense of the legal system, uh, the, the European uh, HR uh, regulations and that, which, which I agree for. They, they are a good set of regulations. I'm not anti-regulation 
or uh, protecting workers' rights at all. But uh, there is a lot of red tape to some of this. And uh, so you get, get people at a better price and you get, you get the pick of the world. So, and this goes back to my point of education. Um, before uh, COVID, and you, you do a lot, you do corporate work. So you talk to corporates all around the world and they say, we can't find the people. Of course you can't because the corporate world is only hiring out of 7% of the world's population who have gone to college. It's like, how about giving 93% of the world, you know, let, let's, let's get them in on the action. And the only way we can do that is to make uh, learning and, and uh, knowledge available as freely as possible. And that's through platforms like Allison that have a business model that allow people who have the knowledge to share it online, to make money for doing it so they can get something for it. And, and then... Uh, people can access it and empower themselves with knowledge. And you never empower yourself alone. You always empower yourself, your family, your community, and you empower people in ways that you don't really realize sometimes. You empower yourself through the knowledge and skills that you actually learn so you can do more. But the other thing that comes along is confidence and self-esteem. These are powerful things. The, these are the things that lifts people, This is that lifts communities, that lifts whole countries in the sense that they feel better about themselves. It, it, it increases prosperity, makes people more positive, makes them less negative, gets people working together. <laughs> it's a powerful thing. That was um, a fascinating conversation just on where this is going because what it's doing more than anything is it's changing our paradigm of our own capacity to learn. For so long, we've been indoctrinated by having to have an expert give us the knowledge and only when it's somebody who is validated and who has been uh, socially acknowledged can we then say yes we are smart but through this movement it's giving us an opportunity to step in and say I can learn and develop and evolve into whatever I want to be because it is forever available to me and it's not on the basis of any application letter or a number of points that's going to dictate what I get access to in the world. And I think that's a very uplifting thing, which will only accelerate more and more. So I'm, um, I'm delighted that you got to come in and join us and share where education is moving to. And it was very interesting to watch some of your interviews from the last four or five years, which were almost Nostradamus-esque for what's actually going to be happening in education in the coming future. And we really see it now with COVID. And I'm, I'm very looking forward to seeing what's going to happen over the next five years as this accelerates further and further. So uh, thanks for joining us, Mike, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Patrick. What a great conversation we had. And I want to say huge thank you to Mike Fierick for joining me on the show today. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. And I also want to say a huge thank you to you for listening to today's show. It's been about a year now that this podcast has been running. We started towards the end of October in 2019 with our first episode with Dara Hickey. And since then, we've had an opportunity to interview and converse with a lot of amazing different Irish innovators and leaders from so many different backgrounds with so many interesting stories. And collectively, they all went through their challenges and their difficulties, but showcased the true wonders that can happen if you persist in the face of ch these challenges and difficulties and stick to your guns. And I will miss the opportunity to be able to sit here and converse with these people going forward. But 
this will be my last episode hosting the podcast. I have to step away to focus on my own business and the endeavors of the Bowery Common to grow that business, hopefully to a point where I will have the merit to sit in the other side of the seat in a few years and tell the story of this business. And to do that, I have to step away. Unfortunately, I I can't continue to be involved in the hosting and the production of this podcast. But it has been a true pleasure and a joy to be involved and deserves saying a huge thank you to some people in Digital Irish who have been so supportive and obviously extremely instrumental in making this happen. It was probably the springtime of 2019 when I got to have a conversation with Gavin McMahon at Digital Irish who suggested that I might come into the fold a bit more and and that opened up the conversation to talk about starting this podcast and once that was put on the table Fergal Kenny and Marianne Pierce were extremely supportive in making that happen and getting good guests and bringing this show to the standard of what it is today and I say all that to mention to you as a listener that this is a wonderful organization with wonderful people who are so supportive to really showcase the very best of Irish innovation, the very best of creativity and leadership in the sphere of Irish tech, but even outside of that, if it merits with somebody who is really putting in passion to create something wonderful and is coming from an Irish line of some sort of lineage, but has a story of creativity, of perseverance, of passion, of inventiveness. They want to share that story and they want to connect people who also operate their lives and live in such a way. And for anybody who has been to their events or the virtual ones or the live ones will know what a great community it is and how supportive people are and the wonderful people that you could meet at those events. That's what got me into it, where it was just a wonderful opportunity to have conversations with interesting people you might not run into otherwise, apart from attending those Digital Irish events in New York City. So I say all that because if, if you're listening to this and if you have an idea of something creative to showcase what's happening with Irish innovation around the world, if you have a creative pursuit to strengthen that message, to champion that message, to share it in some format, I highly recommend that you reach out to Gavin Fergal or Marianne because I can strongly say they're an extremely supportive trio who want to put forth that message and and do a great job of doing it. And they've been incredibly supportive of helping me do this and and kind of taking the reins on hosting and producing this podcast. So if you want to reach out to them, I would recommend doing so directly, be it through LinkedIn or also emailing hello at digitalirish.com. And if you even in general just have suggestions of maybe how the organization can help Irish business people, help promote Irish innovation, help connect Irish business people around the world, please reach out because they want to hear from you. They want to feed and facilitate interesting ideas. So with that, I'm going to have to sign off for the final episode of of my role in hosting this podcast. And I also want to extend a huge thank you to Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart at the Full English Post, who have been a, a true pleasure to work with in putting this podcast together. So to finally say, I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.